So Pastor David asked that I provide a little bit of historical context for the new book that we're about to start today. So Rome, Italy, 62 AD. A ship from Alexandria arrives with a special passenger, Paul, the leader of Christianity, and soon to be prisoner of Rome. Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem for insurrection. He was held for two years in a Roman stockade at Caesarea and is now preparing to stand before the Roman emperor. We have no record of his encounter with the Caesar, but I'm sure by the time Paul was done, it was Nero who felt like he was on trial. You can count on Paul to present the ruling Roman with a compelling witness for Jesus. Imagine this showdown in Nero's palace. The apostle of the Gentiles stands before the king of the Gentiles. At Paul's conversion, Jesus had predicted that Paul would bear his name before Gentiles and kings. And now the moment has come, but the apostle Paul confronts the king of the Gentiles with the king of all kings. Secular historians mark a noted, uh, note a marked change in Nero around the time of this meeting with Paul, between 62 and 63 AD. Nero went nuts. He went insane. It's possible that Nero's rejection of the gospel caused him to go into a tailspin. Likely demon-possessed, Nero became one of the cruelest rulers of all time. He murdered his own wife and mother. Nero was an egomaniac. He showed off by building stadiums and erecting pagan temples, but the city of Rome was out of room and Nero needed more space. On July 19th in 64 AD, a fire started in the woodsheds near the Circus Maximus. Later, it was reported that Nero's servants were seen running from the sheds just before the blaze started. The fire engulfed the city and it raged for 10 days and torched two thirds of downtown Rome. Everyone suspected Caesar Nero to be the arsonist. He had burned his own city just so he could rebuild it in honor of himself. As the old adage goes, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. And when the fingers started pointing at Nero, he needed a scapegoat, so he blamed Rome's destruction on the Christians. Nero launched a massive crusade to persecute the followers of Jesus. Nero clothed Christians in animal skins, threw them to wild dogs, and watched them get mauled. He burned them at the stake to light his parties. Under Nero, Christians were crucified, executed by gladiators, and torn apart by ferocious lions. Nero's persecution was relentless and merciless. Finally, in 65 AD, he arrested the two champions of Christianity, Peter and Paul. For Paul, it was his second arrest. That same year, Peter was crucified upside down. A few months later, Paul would be beheaded. But for the moment, Paul is in the maritime prison, in chains and shackle, and his head is on the chopping block. He's in a dungeon, a cold, dark, damp, subterranean cave. In Paul's day, it was rat-infested and sewer-infected. Right outside the maritime prison was the Gemonian Stairs, nicknamed the Stairs of Mourning. It was famous in Roman history for being a place of Roman execution. The condemned would be bound, strangled, and thrown down the stairs. Their corpses would either be scavenged by dogs or thrown into the Tiber River. Death on the stairs was considered extremely dreadful and dishonorable. Among the most famous held in the prison were Publius Cornelius, stepfather of Mark Antony, Lucius Sianus, prefect of the Praetorian Guard under Tiberius, and Simon Bargiora, leader, uh, leader of the Jewish result in 70 AD. Now Paul, the beloved apostle, is in the maritime prison in chains and shackles. He hears the screams of fellow inmates being tortured. 
He knows at any moment he could be next. Welcome to Paul's world. As he awaits his day with the executioner, he pens his final New Testament letter to his young pastor, Timothy. The purpose I had for that being read as we begin this new book, 2 Timothy, I want to take you back there. I want to take you back there. The Apostle Paul did not write the book of 2 Timothy in a church or, or in a, a religious place of worship. He wrote it from a dungeon. He, he, was, he was facing impending death. He, he, he's incarcerated. He's, he's incarcerated at what they call the maritime prison in Rome, Italy. It's still there today. It's 2.3 miles from the current Vatican. And it is still there today. You can still go to the place where this dungeon was. What would you have done if you were there and incarcerated in this prison? I don't know about you. I'd be crying. I'd be looking for a way out. I'd be asking God, what did I do? You know, I would, I would have a lot of squirrels going through my head. My focus would probably be on me trying to get out. But what is Paul's focus? Paul's focus is his young pastor, Timothy. Paul's focus is not on himself and in, 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 in the dungeon he's in, but his focus is on Timothy, who is out there. Chapter 1 of 2 Timothy could be summarized in this, the encouraging words to a struggling pastor is, is, what, is, the, is the thesis of 2 Timothy chapter 1. But I want to take it beyond that because, yes, being a pastor is, is, it can be difficult, but so can being a leader. So can uh, being a godly parent. So can being a believer. It can be difficult in times of serving the Lord faithfully. So the title of my message is Encouraging Words to a Struggling Pastor and to all believers who endeavor to serve the Lord in their life. It can be trying and difficult times. So as we write this letter, think about Paul in the maritime prison in a dungeon. He's facing death. He's facing death. But his focus is not on himself, but on his young pastor. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, Thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, as we get into it now, um, let us understand it in its historical context and let us apply these truths that we see in this chapter to our life. In Jesus' name I pray, Father. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, let's, let's take a look at our 2 Timothy chapter 1 in our verse-by-verse study. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. In my study of this passage, I couldn't get past verse 1 when I was thinking about where Paul is. Where is Paul? Paul is in a prison. He's facing death. But look at what he says in verse 1. He's talking about the promise of life in Christ Jesus. He's talking about life. He's not looking at his, his circumstances in the maritime prison. What is the promise of life in Christ Jesus? What is the promise of Christ to every single one of us and to all believers that will seek to follow after him? 
The promise of life in Christ Jesus is forgiveness of sin. To be completely forgiven of our sins by Jesus' death on the cross. The, the promise of life in Christ Jesus is freedom from guilt. Freedom from shame. We have a lot of stuff in our past. I don't know about you, but I do. And when I came to Christ, he removed that guilt of all the stuff I had done. He had removed that shame. That's part of the promise of life in Christ Jesus that Paul is referring to here in verse 1. A new heart. And here's the thing. It's interesting that Paul is, is opening up this book with this statement because he's, he's talking about something that the world can't give. We can't find these things in this world. You can't find forgiveness of sin. You can't find eternal life. You can't find a new life. That's something that only Jesus and Jesus alone offers all people. So he's talking about the promise of life in Christ Jesus. He's pointing his young pastor, Timothy, who's the pastor at Ephesus, and he's struggling. He's pointing him to the eternal life that's in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 2. Actually, we'll look at verses 2 through 4. He says, To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. So here you have Paul in the prison, in chains, in in shackles, and he's, he's focused on Timothy. The apostle Paul, he loved Timothy. Timothy was his disciple. His, 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 um, it was like he was handing off the mantle to Timothy. I mean, yeah, to Timothy, because Paul was going to uh, lose his life here shortly after he writes this book. This is the last New Testament letter written by Paul. But between Paul and Timothy, we see this relationship, this mentee-mentor relationship. This disciple, disciplor uh, relationship. Paul knew his time was short, and he's handing off the baton. And his focus is no longer on himself, but his focus is on Timothy. In verses 2 through 4, he, he says these things to Timothy. He says to Timothy, he says, my beloved son, my beloved son, a term of endearment, a term that shows how much he loved Timothy. He says in verse 3, I constantly remember you in my prayers. And how much much of that is true when you're discipling someone that you're praying for them. And you want to see them succeed. When you lead a Bible study, when you disciple people, your greatest goal and your prayer for that person is that they succeed in life and that they make it. And then in verse 4 he says, longing to see you. Look at this. I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. So he even talks about um, Timothy's endearment towards him. Timothy is out there somewhere in the Roman world, probably at Ephesus, and, and, and he is shedding tears for Paul. But at the same time, Paul is shedding tears for Timothy. Let's look at verse 5. He says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your, and your mother Enos, and I am sure that it is in you as well. So the next thing that Paul addresses here in his, his young uh, protege is, look, in verse 5, sincere faith. He had, that, that Timothy, what, basically what Paul is saying here, that Timothy had a sincere, authentic faith. And what's equally more important that 
or this really cool about this verse, verse 5, is this, where did his sincere faith come from? Where did it come from? It came from his upbringing. It came from his, his mother and his grandmother. Now, you got to understand, Timothy was not raised in the perfect Christian home. Acts chapter 16, verse 1, indicates that uh, Timothy's father was not a believer. He was not a believer. It was just his mother and his grandmother was a believer. And the impact that they had on their son, it reminds me of the impact that my grandmother had on me. You know, I will forever be grateful to her. I believe that my salvation came in 1992 as a direct result of my grandmother praying for me. And so it was back then, so it is today, that our godly grandparents and our godly parents have such a great impact on our spiritual heritage and coming to Christ. They sow the seeds in our life. They pray for us. They lead us. They guide us. And the ultimate goal is to bring us to bring us to Christ. Second Timothy, uh, later on in this book, in Second Timothy chapter three, verse fifteen, uh, Paul will say, "And that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus." So, so Timothy's mother and grandmother, evidently from an early on age, taught him the scriptures. And that made a lasting impact. When God's word goes forth, it doesn't come back void. So mom and dad, you're sowing seeds. You're teaching your kids the word. God's word will not return void. They may stray. They may fall away for a season. But God's word will do its job. His word will do its job. It will remind them in the quietness of their soul of those biblical truths. When they lay their head on their pillow at night in their silence, the Lord will remind them of these great truths. When they look out at night over the starry heavens and, and they think about life and why you're here and the things of eternity and the things of the Lord, God will remind your children of the things that you've taught them. That's so important. This should be every parent's top priority. Every parent's top priority is to pass down the faith to pass down the faith, to teach children scriptures, and to hopefully lead them to Christ. Now, we know that salvation is of the Lord, and we know that it's the Holy Spirit that ultimately is responsible for changing a heart. But our job is to just sow the seeds. As Charles Spurgeon once said, we just put the logs around the fire and wait for the Holy Spirit to come down and ignite that fire and ignite those logs. But we do play a part. We do play a part. And it played a part here in, uh, Timothy's, in, uh, in Timothy's life. And Paul is pointing that out. He's encouraging him because Timothy's there at Ephesus. He's in the throes. He's facing all kind of difficulties. And so Paul is now encouraging his young pastor. Take a look at verse 6. Verse 6. Now, you need to understand this. As I said a while ago, Timothy is, is struggling. But if you, if you take a survey of First Timothy chapter 1 and chapter 2, you'll see there's indications that he's having a difficult time there at Ephesus. And we know from other books of the Bible, in the book of Acts, that there at Ephesus they were facing uh, false teachers. They were facing uh, persecution. And, and it, was, it was a new church. It was a new church. So Timothy was facing all these struggles and all these pressures. So Verses 1 through 5 is the introduction. 
Now, verses 6 through 18 of chapter 1 are, are, are what I call the principles of encouragement. So I'm going to give you eight principles of encouragement this morning. Eight principles of encouragement that Paul gave to Timothy. And basically what he's saying here is, this is how you don't bow to the pressure of the world. This is how you don't bow to the pressure of the world. This is how to not compromise in your walk with the Lord. So let's take a look at it. Verse 6. Verse 6. Principles of encouragement from Paul to Timothy, from the scriptures to us this morning. Verse 6. He says, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Principle number one I present to you this morning from the scripture this is, is if you're struggling and you're having a difficult time, is rediscover your gift and use it. And I pull that from verse 6. Evidently, he, he, Paul says, I remind you to kindle afresh. Timothy's passion for the ministry and his passion for the Lord had, had, had simmered, had kind of went down, and he was discouraged. I like how the NIV puts this verse. The NIV says, uh, fan into the flame of the gift of God. And what do you do when you have a small, when you're trying to start a fire? You give it, you, you blow air on it. You give it fuel. And that's what he's saying. Rediscover your gift. Let the Holy Spirit blow into your life. And let him reignite the passion for the gift that he's already given you. And then take that gift and use it for his glory and for his kingdom. Every single believer has a gift. And so now he's telling young Timothy, hey, man, you're in the throes. You've had some difficult times, but it's time to rekindle that flame and use that gift that God has given you. And he says that to us today through his word. So that's number one. Rediscover your gift and use it in the church, in the home, in the community. Use that thing the Lord, use that gift the Lord has given you. Let's look at uh, verse 7. Verse 7 is, is, is the second principle. He says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. My second principle I present to you this morning is do not be fearful. Do not be fearful, but step out. Step out in faith. Uh, that word timidity means uh, to, to have a spirit of, of fear. And, and Paul is saying to Timothy here, and he's saying to us through the word this morning, that that is not of the Lord. That spirit of fear, that spirit of, that spirit of being scared is not of the Lord. It doesn't come from God. He says to step out. And look at what he says to step out in, in verse 7. He says, but, but he's given us a spirit of, of power. Of power. That power talks is, is, a, is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's dunamis work in our lives, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is inside of you if you are a Christian. The Holy Spirit that the Father sent to raise Jesus from the dead is living inside of us. That same power resides within us. And that same power gives us victory over temptations. Over the things of this world. That same Holy Spirit that gives us power, it gives us a ministry. It gives us a, to, to, the power to be a witness for him. And that's what 
Paul is saying to him here. To step out in these things. Uh, about a power. And then he says, uh, we, and we're called to step out in love. A love for God. A love for this world. A, a love for the body of Christ. A love for people. You know, an authentic Christian loves people. Because that is the heart of the Father. And, and he wants you to exude and exemplify that love to those around you. That love to your spouse, to your family, to the church, to your neighbors, to the world around you. We're called to walk in that love. That's what God gives us by his spirit. And then finally, uh, he says there in verse 7, we're, we're to step out in discipline. That word discipline, it speaks of, um, speaks of a sound mind and, and self-control. You know, when, when we become a Christian and, and, we, and we, we become a disciple of Christ and we pursue him, he gives us a sound mind and we're able to discipline our lives and we're able to make better decisions. Um, how many of you can testify to this? Man, the decisions I make today after I became a Christian are a whole lot better than the decisions I made before Christ. I want to kick myself. I want to forget about those gaffes I made before I came to the Lord. But after I came to the Lord and I thought soberly, I think clearly, you know, I pray, ask the Lord to show me. I study his word. He, he, he gives me um, the spirit of discipline, the spirit of a sound mind and, and control. You know, I think through the processes or, or through the actions before I do them. You know, and that would save us a lot of heartache. And that would save us a lot of pain if we would just think through the process before we do it. But many times, and many times the mistake I have made is, is, is I do it before I think about it. And that's not, that's not of the Lord. That's not of the Lord. But number two is, is we don't be fearful, but step out in his power, in his love, and in the discipline he gives us. Let's look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Now, I want to, the third principle there is we're called to embrace the difficulty of being a Christian. But I want to look at the very end of verse 8 for me real quick. He says, according to the power of God. Right there, right there, you can circle that. That is how Paul was able to endure this time at the maritime prison. That's how he was able to face his pending death. It wasn't him that was able to do it. It was the power of God. It was the Holy Spirit in him that gave him the grace and the strength to endure. Right outside of where he was, the Jeronium stairs, it was a place of execution. It was a place of murder. And there's no doubt in my mind based on the location of these two places that are still standing today, that you could hear what was going on out there. And we knew back in, back in that day that there was only one Lord in that, in that culture, and that Lord was Caesar. So in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, where it says, that the, you know, the Romans road that we talk about, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, God raised him dead, you will be saved. To say that Jesus is Lord back then was a death sentence. Because in that culture, there's only one Lord, and that's Caesar. But then the gospel comes in and says, no, Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Amen? Amen. So, but, but going back to verse 8 here, um, the third principle is we embrace the difficulty 
of, of being a Christian. You know, we suffer for the gospel. You suffer for the gospel when your allegiance and your stand for the gospel offends others. That could be as simple as um, calling out a false religion. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You ready for this? The rest of the verse, he says, no one comes to the Father except by me. That's exclusive. That means there's only one way to salvation, and that's through the cross. That's through Jesus Christ. And all other ways are not true because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. But when we call out false religions, you know, expect to get some heat. But that's, you know, you got to stand for the truth. You know, I heard, I heard someone say one time, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. So let's stand for what the scripture stands for. You know, we refuse uh, this difficulty, this, this suffering for the gospel that he's talking about in verse 8, can take place when we refuse to bow to ungodly laws that violate their, your faith. You know, I think about the baker. That is suffering for the gospel. They said, no, we're, we're not going to bake this cake for this same-sex wedding because it violates what we believe as Christians. And if you haven't seen the news, Fox News, local news, they've endured a lot of suffering. I would compare that to what Paul is, is, is talking about here in verse 8. He says, join with me in suffering. We don't suffer for ourselves we don't suffer for our family. But look at verse 8. We suffer for what? What does it say in verse 8? For the gospel. But when you get to that place where you take a stand for biblical truth or you, you take a stand for the gospel and you get some heat, guess what happens in your heart and mind? Your faith grows. Your faith grows. And that's a good place to be. It's like there's a testing of your faith and your faith becomes stronger because you know what you said, you know what, no, I'm not, that, 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 that is not the truth. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the only way to the Father. It's only through the cross. When we make those bold stands and, and we, we go through the fire, we, we go through the difficulty, you come out on the other side stronger. And is that not what we all want? A strong faith? A strong faith. So when your faith is challenged, just send up a little prayer and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that in this moment, my faith was challenged, and I stood on your word. And I suffered a little bit, but God, you're going to get all the glory because I'm going to grow in this difficult time. So that's number three. Let's continue. Verse nine. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who, I love this, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Again, Paul's in that prison. He's facing death. But guess what? His death has already been dealt with. He's, he is already died to himself and he has this new life in Christ. And the principle I pull I give to you this morning from verses 9 and 10 is this, make the gospel your foundation. Paul is taking Timothy in these two verses as he's writing this, he's taking him back to the foundation. You know, Timothy in your difficult times at Ephesus, 
in your, in your trials, in your tribulations, and dealing with the persecution, and dealing with the false teachers, at the end of the day, when you lay your head on your pillow at night, or when you're meditating on these things, remember what Christ has done for you at Calvary. Re- remember that. You know, our heads can get filled with so much stuff, and, and get confused, and be disillusioned, and in the mental fight, and the mental warring. But at the end of the day, let your mind rest in peace and go back to the foundation. I'm here because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And, and because he died for me, I'm going to live for him. And in verse 10, look at what Christ abolished. In verse 10, he says, he, says, he, he, abolished, he abolished death. He abolished death. You know, each and every single one of us faces an eternity once you make that step from time into eternity, you're going to be gone forever. You're going to be gone forever. And there's nothing more important than our eternal salvation, than where you spend eternity. Where you spend eternity. And the scripture's clear. There's two eternal destinations for all souls. One is hell and one is heaven. And that this place of heaven is a place of eternal life where there'll be no death, there'll be no sickness, there'll be no disease. And through the gospel, through the cross, according to verse 10, he has abolished the sting of death. And he, he's abolished it. And he says in verse 10, and the other thing that he's done there, he's brought life. He's brought life. You know what? But life, eternal life doesn't just start in eternity, even though I believe it's going to be awesome, it's going to be off the chain, no eye is seen. No mind is conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. It's going to be amazing. But it also starts here in this life. You are partaking of eternal life now because you're a believer in Christ. And you're united with him. He's given you life. He's given you life. And he's removed the darkness. He's removed the chains. He's removed the guilt. He's removed the shame through the gospel. And, and he's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So remember, at the end of the day, in the difficult and trying times, we go back to our foundation, and we go back to it regularly, and that is, we go back to the, 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 the foundation of the gospel. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, the apostles is speaking to his young pastor in this letter. He says, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Three ministries that, that Paul operated in, according to verse 11. And I believe all three of these have three different functions within the body of Christ. Let's take a look at them. He says, for which I was appointed one, a preacher. He was a preacher. A preacher is the ministry to the lost. A preacher is one who proclaims and heralds the gospel to, to unsaved people. And he proclaims it, he preaches it, he presents it, and then the Holy Spirit comes and convicts the people of what's being said. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So that's the first one. The ministry to the lost is a preacher. Then he says, and an apostle. And an apostle. You know, um, we call the, the, the original disciples the apostles. But we have apostles today, but they're not called apostles. We call them missionaries. But missionaries 
do the same thing today that they did back then. The apostles were the eyewitnesses of Christ. They went out and established the church. But the, the word apostle and the word missionary have the exact same definition. One who is sent out. One who is sent out. And they go and establish churches. And do we not have that today? People that go out and establish new churches and new communities around the world. So Paul was a preacher. He was an apostle, missionary, and then a teacher, according to verse 11. This, uh, this reference to a teacher, this is what I call the ministry to the body. The ministry to the body. The local church gathers together to be equipped and to be taught from Scripture. That's, that's the goal of a pastor-teacher is to teach the Word and to teach the fundamental uh, foundations of Christianity. And as the scripture says, to equip the saints for the work of service. So those are the three ministries that Paul operated in in verse 11. And he would be in, he would be in different ministries depending on where he was in his, his missionary journeys throughout Europe and Asia. Verse 12, verse 12 we'll see the fifth principle, number five of, of, of eight. Verse 12, he says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, and I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Again, Paul is in this prison cell, likely chained to the wall or to some kind of stump that some scholars believe. But do you look at verse 12? Do you notice all the eyes? I am, I know, I have, I am. I have. I think there's six or seven of them here. But the principle from verse 12 is this. Be solid in your faith. Be solid in your faith. Uh, don't, don't be moved. Don't be moved is, is, is the thesis of verse 12. Do not be moved away from what you believe in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Be firmly established. He says there in verse 12, the first one, the first one is... Um, after he says, for this reason I also suffer these things, talking about his imprisonment, then he goes into him. He says, first one is, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. You know, we're, we're called to not be embarrassed about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is how God, it, it is what God uses to forgive men of their sins. It's what God uses to bring this new life. Paul would say in uh, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of, of God's salvation for everyone who believes. Then he says there, um, the next phrase in verse 12, I know whom I have believed. What does that say to us this morning? Have faith. Have faith. Have faith and have confidence in what you believe from Scripture. Then he says in verse 12, halfway through it, and I am convinced. I am convinced. In other words, Paul is saying here, he says, let there be no doubt in your mind. Let there, let, 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 let there be no doubt in your mind on what you believe. Don't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and things people say. Take what, said, what it says in the Scripture and believe it and trust it because it is God's word, and have no doubt. And then he, he ends verse 12, he says, For I have entrusted to him until that day. So Paul's in the prison, and he's looking forward. What does that phrase speak of? That phrase speaks of hope. And how many of you know Christ gives us hope? 
Not only does he give us hope for eternal life, but he gives us hope for the future. He gives you hope for the here and now. When things are upside down and turned sideways and things aren't going right, he gives us hope for the future when we put our trust in him, when we put our faith in him, and when we walk in him. So he's seen in all areas, verse 12, be solid in your faith, don't be moved, have faith, no doubt, have hope for the future, and be solid in your faith. And that's our goal here at Calvary Chapel Irmo, is that as we teach the word, as we sow the seed, that, that we whet your appetites for scripture, and man, you go home and you study your Bible by your bedside at your coffee table, and you study the word for yourself and let your faith grow. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Verse 13, verse 13, this is a good one. His instructions to, to young Timothy, he's like, hey, Timothy, do this. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. He says there, the NASB says, retain the standard of sound words. What's he saying here? Be a student of the word. Be, be a student of the word. Love this book. Treasure this book. Defend this book. Be like they were in Berea. This, when apostle, the apostle Paul, guys, the apostle Paul who inspired scripture, he goes to Berea, and what do they do when he teaches the word? They, it says they diligently studied the scriptures to make sure what Paul was saying was correct. Okay? If you got to examine Paul, well, guess what? you got to examine all of us. you got to examine all of us and, and make sure what is being said is true and biblical. And there's only one way you're going to do that, okay? It doesn't come by osmosis. It doesn't come by, okay, let me Google what he just said on my phone. It comes by you being a student of the Word yourself and knowing what it says. You know, systematic theology. You know, on any particular subject that's in the Bible, what we call systematic theology is we take everything the Bible says about that subject and we put it together. So sometimes you'll go to one verse, it don't give you a complete picture of, say, the omniscience of God or the sovereignty of God. But what you do is you go to all the passages on the sovereignty of God or the cross or live in the spirit filled life and you put them all together that's what we call systematic theology you put them all together and it gives you a well-rounded biblical worldview that you can establish your faith on that is a result of studying the scriptures for yourself and that's why he Paul says retain the standard of sound words you know uh, eat the meat spit out the bones is what I like to say you know, I, I eat the meat, I spit out the bones. What's good, solid, biblical, I hold on to. What's not, I let it go. I do not retain it. Which you have heard from me. And this is important, verse 13. In the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Now, we do not study the Bible to become Bible scholars. Okay? Even though we do need to know the word, we, we need to have a good handle on Scripture. But the ultimate reason for you to study the Bible for yourself is so that you'll have faith and love in Christ Jesus. As you study the word, it makes you love Jesus more. It makes you trust him more. It makes you see how great and how magnificent he is. So when you hear these preachers and Christians and, and other people going crazy, talking about how great God is and how great Jesus is, most likely they've been in the Bible. They've been in the Bible and they've been studying it. 
and they're seeing these amazing truths. They're seeing God's word just come alive and jump off the pages of the Bible and show how great and how magnificent it is. But retain the standard of sound words. That's what he tells Timothy and what God tells us. Be a student of the word, number six. All right, let's look at number seven. Number seven comes from verse 14. Uh, Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Wow. Wow. The principle here is guard all these things that we just talked about. Number seven, guard all these things. Guard through the Holy Spirit. You know, surrendering your life to the Holy Spirit. Trusting in His leading. Guard these things that we learn in the Scriptures. And He says, the treasure which has been entrusted to us. What is the treasure? The treasure is the gospel. The, the treasure is the gospel. Um, and we, we are to, to guard the gospel that has been entrusted to us. In other words, God says to us, he says to us as a church, and to all churches for that matter, here is my gospel. Take it to the world. Guard it, defend it, protect it, proclaim it. You know, the Bible says that we are ambassadors for Christ as though Christ makes his implore through us. And that's, and we're to guard all these things that we talked about. You know, rediscovering your gift. You know, don't be fearful. Step out. Embrace the difficulty of being a Christian. Guard all these things. Because these are everyday principles for everyday life for the believer in Christ. And, and, what, and, and also, um, guard what God has done in your life. In other words, hold on to your testimony. You know the things that God has delivered you from. You know what he has rescued you from. You know what he has done in your life. And guard that thing that the Lord has done in your life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guard it. Defend it. Love it. All right, let's finish up. Chapter 1 says, uh, You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Philelus, Hermogenes, the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what service he rendered at Ephesus. This is Paul the Apostle. You know, so many people say, man, if I could just live back in that day, if I could just have seen Jesus, if I could have seen the Apostle Paul, wow, how awesome that would have been. Man, I would have been on fire. I would have been faithful. I would have been committed. But is that really the truth? Do we know that for sure? We see even in the apostles, we see people turn away from Christ. They witness the, the, the word of God. They witnessed Jesus and they turned away from him. Some followed, some turned away. They witnessed Paul. That would have been so cool. 
to travel with Paul, to see those shackles break at Philippi, to see him preaching at Ephesus and at Corinth. That would have been so awesome. But even the people that witnessed it then, some followed and unfortunately some turned away. So the final principle I present to you this morning from verses 15 through 18 is this. Despite what happens around you in your Christian walk, stay the course. Stay the course. That's number eight. Despite what happens around you, stay the course. Stay the course. Unfortunately, it breaks our hearts and it hurts. And we see people fall away from the Lord. What do we do? We love them. We pray for them. We go after them. We encourage them. We, we don't judge them or condemn them. But we lovingly extend arms of grace. The same arms of grace that would be extended to you and I if you turned away from Christ. And you turned away from the Lord. Despite how bad that is, Christ stands ready to receive a person who returns to him. So there was people here. The, the first two guys in verse 15, they, they turned away from me. In other words, it's like they were, they, were, they were defiant of Paul. You're serving this Jesus and you're doing this kingdom work, and, but we're not going to do it no more. And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go our own way. But you know what, though? Even in, even in life as a believer in serving the Lord, you know there's always somebody that's going to be a faithful friend. There's always somebody that's going to come after you. There's always somebody that's going to send you a Facebook message or send you a text or send you a phone call, and they're going to send you a word of encouragement. You know, we have those in our life. My hope and my prayer is that you've experienced that. But guess what? Paul had it too. Paul had it too. Look at verse 16. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me. And was not ashamed of my chains. But look at verse 17. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. What do you think led him to reach out and go after Paul? The Holy Spirit. When a person falls away, the Holy, one of the ministries, I believe, of the Holy Spirit is he places that individual on people's hearts. And they pray for that individual. They love that individual. They reach out to that individual. They showed grace to that individual. But just as God was, this is 2,000 years ago, as, as, uh, he was faithful to Paul in bringing along friends. So he will be faithful to you and I. And then um, verse 18, he says, The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what service he rendered at Ephesus. You know, our job as a, as a body of believers is to look out for one another. You know what? I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you spiritually. But I'm also here to help you if you need something, if you need some furniture moved or, or, or something's going on or you need some meals. That's how we should be for one another. We are a family. We are a family bound by the Spirit of God, and we're here 
to help each other. Amen? So I hope these have been words of encouragement for all of you guys. Maybe there's some principles here that the Lord is speaking to you, that you're having a difficulty in life, that you're going through difficult trying times. I hope these principles have have spoken to you. And, 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 And I hope these principles help you guard these things and grow in your faith, in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for our verse-by-verse study from 1 Timothy. Lord, encourage us this morning, Father. Strengthen us by your Holy Spirit. Encourage us by the fellowship of one another, Lord, and, uh, and do your work. And Father, if there be anybody here, Lord, that needs special prayer, I pray, Lord, that you will give them the boldness and the courage to slip to the back of the sanctuary and to receive prayer. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for this morning, this Sunday morning time of ministry. And Lord, let us be that. Let us do that. Let us minister your grace and your truth to all people. In Jesus' name I pray, Father. Amen.